You're listening to the Grossed Out Podcast with Rob Gross. It's me. I'm Rob Gross. Welcome to episode three of the Grossed Out Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Gross. I am extremely stoked this week to bring to you one of my really good friends and a uh, one of the most talented people I know, uh, a trusted industry uh, person, whatever you want to call him, Jesse DeFlorio. Um, this bio, which by the way he wrote, so I, I can't I can't take credit for this. Let me give you the background on Jesse. He is a rock and roll photographer in Los Angeles, California, via the Garden State of New Jersey. His photos are frequently used for album covers and magazines and are infrequently in color or in focus, although I disagree with the second part. And he recently switched to decaf coffee, which I also don't believe. Jesse DeFlorio, welcome to the Grossed Out Podcast. Uh, Happy to be here, Rob. Uh, I don't think I've taken a photo in focus in the last half a decade, but I'm glad that you disagree with that. You've been keeping my Instagram alive for the past six years, so I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, we've been on some fun, fun, fun stuff together. We've kind of run the gamut with different artists. We really have. Yeah. I mean, I think before we get into it, um, and, I, and I'm really excited because today is really the whole reason I started doing this podcast was to obviously just bullshit with my friends uh, who happen to be musicians and creatives and, you know, even if they're not bankers, who, who cares, but really to talk about artists from two perspectives. One artists that I know so much about and I want to just dork out on and talk about b-sides and weird shit and others that I don't know as much about I'm a fan of but I don't but I want to talk to an expert and that's what we're going to do today with New Jersey's own Bruce Springsteen and number one fan or whatever Jesse DeFlorio and um but yeah before we get into that uh how I think how it's interesting how you and I met where we ran in the same circles for a while, and I met you through Vanessa Carlton and her team. And um, yeah, I think it was, I, I want to say it was that I had hired you to do a lyric video, and you strapped a GoPro on Vanessa's dog, and I thought it was the most genius shit, and that's how we became friends. It is. I remember that. I think the only people that really loved that concept were you, me, and Vanessa, but we ran with it and we made it into a great video. I still look back at that video incredibly fondly. Uh, yeah. That was, almost, that was seven, eight years ago. But yeah, that is absolutely how we first met, which is, is funny. We kind of hit it off from there and then realized uh, that we love working for artists like that, but that we actually have a way different background than that and a lot of commonality in that in terms of what we personally listen to totally i think if, if, if people just saw us standing next to each other they'd be like okay those dudes are like in a punk band they're hardcore dudes whatever which isn't that far removed from the truth <laughs> but but i think that that um that it, it goes deeper i mean we've worked with you know philip phillips you know our, our, our buddy billy rafool um liz hewitt i mean they've all become friends with of ours now and it's just been pretty cool to have i think i've had i've worked with three different companies in the time that i've known you and we always find a way to work together whether it's through some side door bullshit that i'm like i'm bringing jesse in or you're the you're the only person that can save me and that's basically <laughs> that that was the most recent escapade i think that that pretty much covers that yeah i think my favorite my favorite ones though are the ones where uh, a team comes to you and they go we want something to look like this can you find the guy and you're like 
yeah, I know the actual guy who did this. Can we just hire him? Do you remember that with the Struts one? The Struts uh, video I worked on? They were like, hey, we'd love if it looked like this White Reaper album cover. Right. And you're like, why don't I just call the guy who shot the thing? Right, right. And and, and then my favorite part of all that, and God, if any of them are listening, uh, I, I'm so sorry, is that we delivered the exact thing. We're like, this is what you want. And they're like, actually, we want it to look like Back in Black. I'm like, that doesn't look like anything. That's just black. <laughs> so, there's nothing on that no i mean literally the white reaper cover is white like i don't see okay uh, yeah yeah well th- there's there's my tangent for the night there you so, go there i go so um I, I, what i'm gonna do i i have a series of questions i i probably won't get to all of them um but i i think that a few of them specifically i'm super stoked to get into so i guess i, I assume with bruce as it is with bon jovi again not running the parallel just stating facts do you think that you got into Bruce Springsteen because you grew up in New Jersey and it's kind of like a rite of passage or what got you into his music? How old were you? Tell me the story. It's either a rite of passage or a contractual bylaw or somewhere in between the <laughs> two. Um, yeah. I do think I remember when I was about 16 and a half getting my driver's license. I do think there's a box on that uh, driving test saying, do you swear to follow the uh, religion of Bruce Springsteen? Um, <laughs> Would explain all the car songs. Yeah, uh, well, that, you know, the car is freedom. There's been there's been that funny joke. It's like, yeah, that's like Bruce Springsteen writing us saying the car represents freedom. I mean, that's pretty American. That's very American right there. Yeah, but um, I remember I got into Bruce Springsteen a little bit later than most because growing up, I kind of held Bruce Springsteen in this regard that he was like my parents' music and that I, you know, my parents couldn't possibly understand what I was going through. So they therefore couldn't be, you know, listening to any sort of art that I love. Mm -hmm. Uh, I couldn't be more wrong. Um, I think for like my 15th or 16th birthday, my, one of my best friends, uh, Kelly Shammy, she's now actually a graphic designer for Beyonce. Um, uh, But her and her twin brother are my best friends. And she got me like Bruce Springsteen's greatest hits finally. And Mm -hmm. that was when it clicked. And then, the whole wave came back. I remembered all these moments of my childhood that were like defined by Bruce's music. Like Christmas time, my mom would always put on this Christmas mixtape that had artwork artwork by Keith Haring on it. And my mm-hmm. mother, my mother's a two time Emmy Award winning graphic designer, so she loves Keith Haring. And wait, I didn't, uh, I didn't know that. I, I didn't. Know you that didn't, I, you no, didn't know that? No. My mother uh, uh, won two Emmys for graphic design. One for the Nightly News with Dan Rather. And one for either the Nagano or Lillehammer Olympics. I can't remember which one. Wow, but, dude, that's amazing. So I grew up in an artistic household that loved Bruce Springsteen, even though I pretended not to be an artist or love Bruce Springsteen for a while. <laughs> sure. Um, but mom would put on this Christmas CD that had this Keith Haring cover. I still remember it. It's red and gold. Oh, yeah. I and have that had, yeah, you know, the, the one that like a lot, there were two versions of it. There was a green copy and a red copy. Mm-hmm. And the red copy had Bruce Springsteen's Santa Claus is coming to town on it. And that was like, I'd hear that every Christmas and be like, oh, this is the Christmas song I connect with the most because it was like presented live. It was live recording. It was like yep. rock and roll. And then my uh, memory of my other memories with my father, we would drive um north to canada every year i'm sorry uh, maybe looking for the fools not sure <laughs> billy if you're listening to this it won't be the first or last time you're mentioned no um, it will not and my dad listened to three cds he listened to blondie's greatest hits okay 
but he only listened to three songs off of it. Oh my god! It was "Call Me on the Telephone," "Dreaming," "Heart of Glass," and then he'd be over it. Do you, so your dad basically bought the greatest hits to only hear the hideous hits. The hideous hits, yeah, <laughs> or the most hideous hits, depending on how ah, you want to look at it. Ah, wordplay. Wordplay. Um, he would listen to that, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Wow, this is going or, deep. <laughs> yeah, or disc three of Bruce Springsteen's live 1975 to 85 box set. Just only as, disc three. Just did he lose one and two, or that was that? That was just the one. Uh, that one had a cover of This Land is Your Land on it that my father loved. It was like kind of like the Nebraska E Live edition of that. Okay, uh, got it, CD. got it. Uh, so like his favorite song is Johnny 99 and that song's on there. So those were like my first memories of being into Bruce Springsteen. But I, again, I, I told you at the time, like I held those as my parents' experience or my parents, you know, favorite yeah. type of art. And I went on my own into punk punk rock. Like, I got into music through Alkaline Trio, who I could do a whole other one of these on. And we should. Um, I love Alkaline Trio. We can. Like, Alkaline Trio's and Against Me and Hot Water Music and the Lawrence Arms. Like, that's the stuff that's, like, truest and closest to my heart. And, like, I still, still to agree, define myself by a lot of the topics that those bands wrote about. But then as I got older, I realized my parents were right all along because parents are almost always right all along. And that's uh, when I started ascribing to the Bruce Springsteen fandom. So let me ask you something that I've been thinking about, um, specifically involving you. So I, I know that the, the Lawrence Arms, Alkaline Trio, like Gaslight Anthem against me, these bands that you love so much, they're basically, I don't, they're not offshoots, but they've taken a page or two from Bruce Springsteen. And I think, is that the connection of those bands? Because that's what I hear. Like, a spe- I know you didn't mention Gaslight Anthem, but like 59 Sound, for sure, that album. I hear so much of like Bruce's more driving guitar heavy uh, stuff in that band. Yeah, so I have a 59 Sound tattoo on my finger, so I might lose my New Jersey driver's license for not having <laughs> mentioned them in that last breath. Okay. <laughs> but... Yeah, I absolutely see that. And I, again, I think it was maybe those bands recalled all of these elements that I'd been, Mm. you know, conditioned to hear as a child that I didn't even realize I was conditioned to hear. And that's why I fell so in love with those bands. But then one of the biggest things was then seeing Bruce himself get into those bands and go on stage with bands like the Gaslight uh, Anthem and do songs and bring Brian Fallon out on stage with him. And then like seeing all that, like homogenizing, I guess, or whatever, you know, the right word there, maybe all of a sudden I was like, yes, this is one genre of music. This is just like the next, I, I was just into the next wave of bands that were bowing at the altar of Bruce Springsteen before I realized I was. Of course. Yeah, no, no. And, and it makes total sense to me. Like my, like when I, when I grew up in my house, it was, we had, I mean, I was into like Def Leppard and all this. And like, I even like Faith No More as a little kid, shocker, I know. But it was that, <laughs> it was that my, my stepdad and my mom had a copy of the, the Traveling Wilburys album. And then, right. then got Full Moon Fever. We like, we got our first CD player or whatever. And I remember being like, I'm not supposed to like this. This is my parents' shit. But I fucking love, this is way better than what I bought. And I, it, it took me probably just as long to realize that, that, they were probably right, but they didn't go, you know, a tenth as granularly into that catalog as I did. Tom Petty, I think is, I know you love Petty as well, but I feel like that's mm-hmm. my, that's my Springsteen. Yeah. And then like, I think, well, even like the way you say that, like the way I got into Pearl Jam, your favorite band mm. was the 2004, like vote for change tour and seeing Eddie Vedder come out with Springsteen and having like stuff like that happen. 
uh, that's what like opened up the world of that type of music to me. So it's kind of like I've been seeking this Bruce Springsteen stamp on everything I'm allowed to get into my whole life. Oh, dude, I totally get I don't know if I ever told you this, but I think back in 2005, Pearl Jam did, a, I think it was like a three-date tour where they did two nights in Atlantic City at some casino, which was super, super strange for them. And then they did uh, a night at the Wachovia in Philly, which was this historic, mm-hmm. legendary show. And power went out. It was incredible. But at one of the nights, at one of the casino nights, Ed had written this song called Gone the night before in the in the hotel and they released it on like a Christmas uh, seven inch and as an acoustic version and basically the whole it's a Bruce Springsteen song like there's no Mm -hmm. and and it's about driving away and it's just he wrote a Bruce Springsteen song about a car about himself in Atlantic City it's like you can't get any more fanboy than that no and have wait have you ever heard that funny story he's told on stage before about him and his yelling at his dog. Hmm. You've never heard the story of Eddie yelling at his dog. I don't think I have. There was a Eddie tells this story, and I'm I might be missing an element here too, but I believe what it was is that like Eddie had just moved into a new house and didn't want his neighbors to know like uh, you live next to Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam. Sure. So makes sense. What he realized is though that when he would yell at his dog, he'd be like, "Hey, hey, come on, come on, get get over here." And so all he was doing is making his neighbors think he lived next to Bruce Springsteen instead. Oh my God. It's what it's, I, there's a video of it on YouTube. It's tremendous. How do I not I can't know this? I haven't seen it. I know, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll send it to you after. Yeah. I, I, I'm disappointed in myself. I'm sure my wife knows I'm going to get yelled at later, which is fair. Really? Um, <laughs> please send it on. So, um, Okay, so with Bruce, I think it's different than it is with a lot of artists. I think Petty would be the same with this question I'm going to ask. And it's, you know, it's it, so I guess I'll preface it with how do you separate the solo material and the E Street stuff? Because it's basically two totally different. It, to me, it feels like two totally different sets of rules. Yeah, it totally is. So one of the weird things for me being my age, I'm 32, so I was born in 88. So most of my childhood, like the E Street band wasn't a thing. Oh, right, um, right, right. Because he, Bruce was kind of in, in the late 80s, early 90s, he did that LA phase. And that was before I was like old enough to know what was going on. Mm-hmm. But I got back. So like, this is, this is a story I've, I don't think I've ever told anyone this story. Um, I went to an all guys Catholic or an all guys Jesuit high school in Jersey City, New Jersey called St. Peter's Prep. And in Latin class one day, at the beginning of class every day, like the teacher would print out a prayer of some sorts, pass it all out. And he'd, we'd listen to Tibetan monk chants and say this prayer or something. And hmm. one day he just gave us the lyrics to Springsteen's My City of Ruins, which is off The Rising, which is in 2002, yeah. which is when Bruce reunited the E Street Band. I remember that. And something just clicked that day to me further proving that Bruce Springsteen wasn't just of my parents' generation. He was just as active and prolific as an artist late in his life, which you're kind of conditioned to not expect. Sure. Um, and I think I even knew that at that age, because like I was getting like the later records from punk bands that were like, you know, transcendent in the 80s or 90s, and I was hearing these new records and hating them. Like I had told this story to my girlfriend recently. She loves the Descendants. Descendants are one of her favorite bands of all time, if not her favorite band. That's nice. not named The Clash. Sure. Okay. <laughs> and I didn't listen to the Descendants because in 2003 or 2004, I was on the Fat Wreck Street team and I got sent that song American. Mm-hmm. 
And I was like, this is a, just a bad song. <laughs> well, it turns out I'm wrong. It might be their worst song. Every other Descendants song is incredible. Right. So well, I've had, I, I was aware that like, you're not supposed to have good late records. And then Bruce Springsteen writes The Rising in response to 9-11, essentially. Or actually, he had written most of the songs beforehand. They just happened to parallel. They were written about Asbury Park. They ended up taking on a meaning bigger than that and being about the entire nation. Um, yeah, and I just realized like he's gonna he's gonna be around. I may as well start, you know, listening. <laughs> well, it's just that, that, first of all, I didn't know you were on the Fat Record stream team, so that, that that's amazing unto itself. But, How much sense does it make, though? <laughs> I mean, it makes all the sense in the world. It's like it, 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 like all the sense in the world. Um, <laughs> but but it's it, it's um y- that's a really good point. It's like there's very few artists, and I talk to people about this all the time. That and I talked about it in the first episode of this podcast where. You know, you think about a band like Pearl Jam or Soundgarden that maybe had one record that didn't hold up to the rest. And then you, and you're mad as a fan. Like, how could that record be so shit? How could they under deliver for me? Mm-hmm. And then you look at an artist like um, like a Neil Young, who's had so many bad records. But then every like, you know, 15 years or so, he comes back with a Harvest Moon or um well, that's basically been it as far as I'm concerned in the last 28 <laughs> years. But but I mean, he had some like it's got to be like 10, 13 albums full of garbage in there. And then it's like, no, I've been holding off. Here's Harvest Moon. It's like the follow-up to Harvest from 16 years prior. And it's yeah. amazing. So that that's, maybe it's just that era. Like they're just capable of like finally weeding it out at that point. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, if, like the paralleling that to Bruce, like I think Bruce might have three bad records then tomorrow, tomorrow, as we talk about this, or actually right now, because it's it's past midnight Eastern time. Ah. Bruce is putting out his 20th studio album today, Letter to You. Uh, I think he's had maybe three bad records. And if we all just, if we make three mistakes in our life, we're batting pretty good. Seriously. All right, well, well let's get into that. So, right. so, so, what, so what is your favorite album and what is your least favorite album? Um, my favorite album is 1975's Born to Run because mm-hmm. of, there's just so much sentimentality tied to it to me being a kid listening to that growing up in New Jersey driving the literal streets like sprung from cages on Highway 9. I used to take Highway 9 to get to high school every day. Like it's just like that's ingrained in your blood when you grow up in New Jersey. Right. Um I think his best record is the following one, 1978's Darkness on the Edge of Town. I think that's his best one. My least favorite is probably one of the one of the '90s records, like a Ghost of Tom Joad. I knew it. Uh, I knew it because the two that preceded that one was a Human Touch, and the other one they came out at the same time. And that it's came, Lucky Tap. Yes, yeah, so. yes, yes. Because that came out when I was like feverishly like taking my babysitting money or lawnmowering uh-huh. money or whatever and buying tapes at my local pharmacy. And mm-hmm. I was uh, shout out to Farmore in uh, Delray Beach, Florida, with my grandma. Um, but right. but 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 I was I, I remember loving like hating all of the songs, but loving probably what I would assume his fans think is his worst song, which is Fifty Seven Channels and Nothing On. Yeah, oh, I hate that song. <laughs> I figured you would. I can't stand that song. But actually, it was funny. Funny, but you bring up like the Lucky Town and uh, Human Touch concept. Because I was talking this morning to my friend Brian Dales. He sings in a band called The Somerset. And I just sent him a voice memo. And I said, is Lucky Town Bruce Springsteen's most underrated record? Because the A side of that record is five incredible songs. The B sides are five songs that you never need to listen to. (laughs) 
And I, Brian immediately replies to me and just says, well, it depends. If people know Wrecking Ball existed from mm-hmm. 2012 and acknowledge that as being an incredible return to form, then yes, Lucky Town's the most <laughs> underrated Bruce Springsteen record. Got it. I mean, I just think, look, a lot of artists that like had held over from the, like they, they started in the 70s. They somehow got through the 80s with like a pop hit or two here. They're mm-hmm. like a Phil Collins, like a Bruce Springsteen, like a Tom Petty. And then. They got to the 90s, and I think Tom was the only one that really sh- had his moment to shine. He had his best mm-hmm. strides. I mean, with like full moon, like going to full moon fever. I mean, you, with 89 full moon fever, then you go to Enter the Great Wide Open, Wildflowers, She's the One, and then Echo. That's a pretty fucking solid decade. Yeah, I love that that She's the One film. You've seen that, right? I've never seen the movie. But it's, <laughs> no, no, I haven't either. I'm just messing with you. No, it's like everyone's like, wait, how could, like, that's like the, that, we could do a petty episode too, but that record's so fucking good. And I've always been told, like, don't watch the movie. It'll completely fuck up the record for you. And I, I feel like you need to go on the record now, though, and acknowledge that, like, you've championed that album for <laughs> as long as I've known you. <laughs> I've been championing that album since I found it in the bargain bin at my local Blockbuster video when they started selling CDs in the late 90s. <laughs> um, by the way, jumping back, it looks like Rolling Stone gave Lucky Town four and a half stars in yeah, 92. But that's like, there's certain artists like Beck, Dylan, um, Springsteen, they just get four stars for just mm-hmm. shitting out anything. And Rolling Stone will cover it and give it that. I could be wrong with Bruce because I'm not. I, I don't. I don't know. But this is. They do it with Dylan all the time. He'll put out 78 minutes of him gurgling something, and they're like, "Oh, five stars, <laughs> fucking classic." And it's like, I uh. yes, I I read somewhere once that actually by somewhere once I mean I read it yesterday in a book by Julia Cameron called The Artist's Way mm-hmm. uh, that reviewers are just blocked directors like creatively blocked oh, directors and that'll, that'll oh, that's a doozy to start wrapping your head around well it, it is because like can you imagine being an artist I think about this a lot because like I, I, I love I mean it's no secret I love metal and I don't mean like you know like Slipknot I like there's like really cool like heady shit that I like not to sound like I love like Megadeth, Megadeth too but whatever is that when Metal Mag magazines they will give you they'll review your album they'll give you the cover story and like they'll give you this eight page spread and then they'll ruin you in the review they're like oh (laughs) this is a real return to form blah 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 and then the review at the end of the magazine three out of ten this sounds like a wet fart like this is the worst thing i've ever heard go back to your old band it's like how did you somehow just describe what it's like to be a professional wrestling fan (laughs) as well it's like you spend your entire life watching it, but you have to hate it at the same time. I've never understood that. No, I'm literally like with, so, you know, no secret, Jesse and I are both huge wrestling fans. And I think specifically with like the WWE, it's it's Stockholm Syndrome. It's like, I know this is fucking horrible and I'm hooked because there might be some, there might be five minutes of like glory in this three hour mm-hmm. episode of bullshit. Yeah, that's, you know, I've never understood that concept. And it's, it, maybe that's why I never got into metal. Maybe I was already sick enough of that that little, like, you know, Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, no, no, no. In, in wrestling, why would I do it in another aspect of my life? No, and it's fair. And as I grow older, it's it are, maybe that, that is growing older. Like, these, like you know, an artist like a Bruce or like, especially, you know, like with Petty. and But even a song like The Rising that I, I listened to today just because I hadn't heard it in so long. And it was like, wait, this resonates way more with me now than it did when I first heard it when I was, I think, 21 or 22. Obviously, there was mm-hmm. a lot going on in the world. Like you said, it was 9-11. But that song just resonated more with me today than it had when it was at it at its relevant relevancy peak 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Like uh, I know Biden's been using that song in some mm-hmm. of the promotional videos for the DNC, yep. but that song itself, the rising is the one song that is guaranteed. Like I'm getting choked up now thinking about it, but I've cried at every, every time Bruce has performed that. And I've been there, like I've wept openly, man. I, I, I can, I can get that. And that's, Man, you're just helping the segue so well. It's like you know what you're doing. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm so stoked to ask you this question because it's a two-parter, but it's actually a – all right, I'm going to get into it. So I want to know how many times you've seen Bruce. Can you split it up between uh, you know, uh, his solo and then E Street and then just describe the live experience because with Bruce, I know it's a religious thing. I, I get it. Yeah. Uh, I think I've seen the E Street Band 28 or 29 times, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. And then I've seen Bruce Solo when he did Springsteen on Broadway. Oh, right. You went to that. Amazing. I, got, I took my mother to that. My, mother's, my mother and father are both huge Springsteen fans. Uh, my mom got to go twice. She went with my dad again the second time while I was on tour with the Imagination Dragons. <laughs> Which I've stolen that from a podcast that I can't remember what it is that they call them that, but those are, those those boys are the best. But yeah, so I was on tour. My parents took the tickets to see Bruce the second time, and then I've seen Bruce play three or four times uh, with Joe Grishecki and the House Rockers as his backing band. Oh, and those right. have always been like those are the smaller shows. Those are the ones I photograph. Those are the ones that I get to talk to Bruce and wonder how that's a thing that happens. <laughs> but. Uh, I mean, so yeah, so it's somewhere in like the 32, 33 range total. And that's, I think one of those that was at the Saint too, right? Uh, it was at the Wonder Bar, but it's a Saint, yeah, it may as well have been the Saint. So it's like 200 people, Bruce playing for three hours on Asbury Park on the Jersey Shore, like fans lined up outside. It's so, that's the most New Jersey thing I've ever heard. I can't even get into how it's the most New Jersey thing. I once walked out of... Um, I was with Joe Grishecki and the House Rockers, who are an incredible band from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and their family has been wonderful to me over the years. I've done a lot of work with them, and they did a show. Bruce played with them two hours, uh, you know, some House Rocker songs, some Springsteen songs, yada, yada. And we're leaving the Paramount Theater in Asbury Park, and there's like probably 300 people lined up outside like the artist exit waiting for Bruce. Sure. And we're all following Bruce to the bar because Bruce, when Bruce Springsteen says, do you want to go to the bar? You go to the bar. You go to the bar. Mm-hmm. And Bruce didn't even have to say anything. Just the 300 people just parted themselves like it was Moses crossing the Red Sea and just let Bruce walk himself across the street and walk up two blocks to the Wonder Bar and walk himself in. And no one bothered him. Everyone wow. just said, we love you and just let him waltz on in like a saint it was one of the most incredible new jersey moments i've ever seen in my life that's insane that's really amazing because you'd think that even because he's been doing this for so long that you'd have to imagine that as people get older they have kids the kids treat artists with a different maybe regard than their parents did but that's amazing that like nobody would bother him yeah everyone was just happy to see him and let him like go on his way it was truly like i'm with you on that like because i think people you know, people a little bit younger than me, I think that's kind of when everything changed. But like growing up, if I saw the singer of a punk band that I loved at the bar at a venue, which would happen all the time, because back then it was kind of safer to just not stay in your dressing room the whole time. You could just go sit at the bar and no one really bothered you. Like I'd walk up and say, hey, I'd love love your band. Can I buy you a shot? And they might say yes. They might say no. And you would do that. And then you'd go on your merry way. Totally. 
I mean, the, we didn't the, grow, we didn't grow up in the land of meet and greets. No, no, it's 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 so funny because like that like that that kind of respect like there was um you hear these stories over the years of bands that you know obviously think they're bigger than they are they're not or they're like oh I like to keep the mystique and be backstage until I play this room that's 150 cap it's like yeah I I don't think it matters like <laughs> just I don't well, that's think- one of my things I've said this time and time again like. If Bruce Springsteen can remember my name, then you don't have any fucking reason to hotshot me. Dude, I'm telling you, I've worked with artists over the years. Well, there's one specifically, and I and we had met so many times. I mean, and I like to preface this. I mean, you know this because, like, you know, you and I both, I think, operate very similarly in our own respective lanes. Where it's not a job. Like, I mean, it is. It pays my bills and all that kind of stuff. But you, I, we, we travel. We're there. We want like it becomes like a like a family and friends kind of situation because you want to get to know these people. You spend all this time with an artist. You don't want to be a stranger. And they, you want them to trust you. They, they, they maybe don't want to trust you and you being there helps them trust you. And I I worked with one artist and I met her. It's something like eight times. And there's no way anyone in her, in her entire stratosphere, she knew anybody that looked anything like me. And every time I met her, she's like, what was your name again? And it's like, you, it's Rob. It's not like I have. Some, At some point, it's just like my name's fucking Steve. Go on with your day. Yeah, like, you, like what? Are you, what game are you playing here? It's so strange. Yeah. And obviously, an older guard thing. So anyway, I, that's one of the things. Like, so in today's documentary that came out about the Letter to You yes. record, Springsteen says he's talking to the band and he says the E Street Band is not a job; it's a vocation. Mm. And I think having an artist that I can champion that realizes that about his own work and his own position and the people he surrounds himself with. That's all the inspiration I'll ever need to not see this thing we do as a job. Totally. I mean, and when you see people like I'd say a Tom Morello, just literally, what was he? He jumped at the chance to play it with Bruce, learned like 105 songs in three days, didn't sleep for like half a week, and then immediately went on tour playing like these four and a half hour, five hour sets a night. You're getting that kind of that level of respect from someone that's already so fucking respected in our business as a human being, let alone a musician and a political activist. That just Mm -hmm. speaks volumes without Bruce having to say or do anything. Exactly. Like, what does it say where a man who like grew up, put himself through college as a as like a black man with, I believe, single mother goes to Harvard, goes into Rage Against the Machine, all the other bands he's done. He could rest on his laurels the rest of his life. But what does Mm -hmm. he do? No, he chomps, (laughs) jumps at the bit (laughs) and just joins his favorite band. Like, come on. It's not a job. you know none of them do that because of that it's got to be there's got to be a reason you do this and i've i've always just thought that bruce springsteen's the most empathetic songwriter in person that i've ever heard and i think that's why he's my guy i love it man i i think you you know you never want to that's like a tattoo you can get that you know you're not going to regret like like they're not going to be outed there's going to be no me too moment with bruce springsteen there's going to be no oh he's a member of the proud boys like it's just not going to happen like you can i I can clearly state that no that like nobody in pearl jam is going to be outed as a sexual predator like the same thing with with bruce it's just not going to happen so there's just yeah so just to switch up for a second, because it's, mm-hmm. it's something that, again, not as like an expert with Bruce Springsteen, but a record that I've always connected with, I've had it on vinyl for years. It's the one I go back to, Nebraska. So mm-hmm. 
where does that sit for you? Because I know it's such a pivotal record for him in, in, in like his career trajectory. And it felt like, like such a left turn. So wh- where does that place for you? And t- tell me what you think about that record. Well, for me, that's the Bruce Springsteen record that I'm most thankful for. And the mm. reason I'm the most thankful for a record like Nebraska is because it is the record that people who don't love Bruce Springsteen unilaterally can agree is this beautiful, incredible record. So I've been able to, over the years, have this conversation about Bruce Springsteen is my favorite. And time and time again, people will come back to me and go, you know, I've never really gotten into him, but I listened to Nebraska recently and I get it now. Mm. It's like, that's the entryway. So if that's your entryway or that's anyone's entryway into Bruce Springsteen, I am thankful that that exists. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it, it, I think because of what I like, like Mark Lanigan, stuff like that, I think mm-hmm. that it, that it makes, or like the darker side of like what Chris Cornell would do on in his early solo work and Jerry Cantrell's solo works, that to me is a direct response or direct uh, influence from Nebraska. Because I, I didn't, it's almost like when you go back to The Clash now, or you go mm-hmm. back to bands that, or, or like Bruce Springsteen, and you're like, oh, fuck. Mike from Pearl Jam totally ripped his guitar tone off of Joe Strummer or mm-hmm. holy shit, that riff that Ed plays is a fucking, it's a who riff or like, it's just, yeah. it's, it's so to me, I feel so fortunate to be born when I was born to, to be able to one live through the last era of that, the early nineties situation, but also to like those bands took all the influence from artists like Bruce Springsteen from that era before mm-hmm. them. So going back to discover those artists is such a trip. Like I imagine that anybody that's in their fifties or sixties that would listen to me say, this is like, you know, what a absolute asshole, but mm-hmm. th- that's, it, th- that's where I am. And <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's a great, there's a great letter. Someone once wrote into to um, when Joe Strummer was hoping was hosting his BBC radio show, someone like wrote in like trashing kind of Bruce Springsteen, and Joe writes this incredible rec- like letter back that basically says like, if you don't like Bruce Springsteen, you're the asshole. Like <laughs> Joe puts it so much better than that, and like uh, Bruce has such a reverence for Joe that makes me love the Clash more. Like the Clash are the band that I remember listening to with my mom earlier than any band. Uh, in existence like got a big old clash tattoo on my forearm might have more i don't even remember <laughs> but it's like seeing those artists pull from one another is just so beautiful because nowadays like you never see that tip of the hat anymore there's never like it never seems like an artist is willing to accept that they might sound like their inspirations it's like if a band if like an indie band nowadays gets told they sound like oasis they blow it off and go well it wasn't really oasis it was Yes. more obscure oasis and i just never right. understood that like there's nothing wrong with being inspired by what comes before you and like channeling it through you and making it your own like mm-hmm. if people just make this basic observation that you sound like this one band that's not a slight to you you still did it you still you know pulled that song out of nowhere and brought it into existence well totally and also like you know and i'm not speaking about bands that are on labels that write songs or have songs written for or with them specifically to hit a certain playlist, a demographic, to make a hit, to fabricate a hit. I'm not, I, I'm sure I like a ton of those songs or, or, you know, some, but, but what, what, 
what what you just said is very interesting because you think about those bands like let's say you take an album like Nirvana's Nevermind and I've never been a fa- smells like Teen Spirit I'm not saying this to be cool I always started the record on track two because I just did not like that song it just I, oh I, I could do a whole podcast about albums that are better if you start them at track two oh dude because there's too many of them people don't know how important that first song is totally but that song changed. The, the the shape it morphed the music business it morphed music so it, it it killed off like several genres with that first riff but that being said like look at a song like lithium huge mm-hmm. hit i'm not gonna not like that song just because it's mega popular like mm-hmm. it's just it, that whole thing of like not not liking things that are popular or not respecting your influences because it might make you look a little less cool it's all bullshit yeah, I mean, hey, look, Bruce Springsteen's never had a number one song. Really? He's done pretty well. For, never had a number one song. He's had plenty of number one albums, but he has truly never had a number one song. Not even His born- highest, no, I think Dancing in the Dark got the highest, and that hit two. I mean, that's, in, that's incredible. How is that possible? It, do, it doesn't seem correct. I right? mean, I fully believe you. I just, I mean, look, again, and not to bring it back again, but look, Pearl Jam has one number one hit. Do you know what that is? Um, is it a cover? You're gonna guess it. God damn it! Yes, it's a cover, Jesse. Is it the "Where Oh Where's My Baby Ben" song? Yes, it's the "Where Oh Where's My Baby Ben" <laughs> song. But they recorded that in Philly as a sound check. That's a live recording. They've never dropped that in the studio. So to have that as your only number one song, and look at all the hits they've—they they are a staple forever of rock radio. Yeah. Now, Bruce Springsteen's songs have been number one, but not his version of them. Huh. So, do tell. Uh, the Manfred Mann's Earth Band cover of Blinded by the Light went number one. You gotta be shitting me. I wish I was. <laughs> oh my god. Alright, so, th- I mean, this is insane. This is actually insane. This, sh- this proves a lot about what... What I do for a living is bullshit. <laughs> so it's not about being number one, maybe. No, it is. I am a solid, good at number five. We're fine. <laughs> um, so okay. So do, so that being said, and starting with Nebraska, kind of wrapping up this this portion of it. If you mm-hmm. if you um, let's say you had somebody, not me, but like a me. Maybe it could be me. Fuck it. Um, where mm, you? It's me. It's me. Um, if you're going to sit somebody down and give them a record front to back, let's say it's not Nebraska, like you want to start them on something that's more, I guess, traditional to what to, to, to what his full band, you know, situation is, where would you start them? I, I think I have to start with Born to Run because it's it's got like definitive hits on it mm-hmm. and it's also only eight songs. So it's like it's quick and it hits you hard. It's 40 minutes, eight songs. Um they're all perfect songs and you kind of get a little bit of the gamut of what he can do. Um, there's like, you know, the intro piano driven, like thunder road, Mm -hmm. then it goes right into a, then, you know, 10th Avenue freeze out's kind of a bouncier piano song goes into night, which is like heavy guitar driven song. And then we're back to piano for back streets and then born, you know, born to run is kind of just like, this machine gun from the start right. and then the record tapers off from there. She's the one meeting across the river jungle land is kind of this like redemptive arc of the character. Just so I think sonically it encapsulates all the different ways he wrote. And it's one of the only albums that he wrote on piano and then transposed to guitar. I think uh, there's something to be said about that. Yeah. Uh, and then the, it just like, 
it ends with a little bit of hope or a little bit of despair. It depends how you want to look at it based on what happens to the narrator in Jungle Land. Then that song is just like this epic breath of, I mean, 10 minutes of, of you know, I don't think you expect that from somebody that, like, if you come in as a, as a casual fan knowing Dancing in the Dark, maybe, you know, Streets of Philadelphia or what, what you know the hits, you know, mm-hmm. I don't think you would expect a song like that out of, out of an artist that you don't know that much about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, that was like getting into Born to Run is also like a big re- big reason I'm a director nowadays is because of the the making of that. It's called Wings for Wheels. It's a Tom Zimney film that came in the 30th anniversary box set, mm. um, which I guess would have been 2005, and I was in high school. So it's like seeing that and seeing the making of that was one of the first times that I was like, wait a second, you're telling me that all this music I love also can tie into film and there's like ways to make films about these things and that's like something i'm still chasing today no well, i mean look I, i'm gonna i'm gonna do a bit of a, a bit of a um a dork out moment on some of your work actually here because <laughs> no because this is for real i think it was the first time that you and i had worked together at this kind of level we were we were in nashville of course shooting for um doing a, a, an album photo shoot and doing um just random shots um, and layout for Philip Phillips for his album Mm -hmm. and watching the shots you were getting, I was like, Oh, this is really interesting. And seeing some of like, I don't know what they're called. So forgive me, but some of the, like just the items that you were playing with, like the, that, that like almost a holographic kind of, um, Oh yeah. We were doing a lot of like elements in front of the lens on that. We were like, yeah. Um, different prisms, different holographic elements. Yeah. Yeah. And and I remember watching you work and be like, holy shit, this is insane. And then looking at the work and as it would pop up on the laptop. And I remember like, Oh, this is definitely got a born to run kind of vibe to it. And obviously record came out. Philip's great. It was, it was overall an incredible experience, but that is one of my favorite album covers of all time. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I still, I still have that thing front and center on my website waiting for someone to say that. So I appreciate you saying that. And I, I loved working on that stuff with you. And again, maybe it is, maybe it was just like the fact that Born to Run is such a pivotal album for me. Like I have a book that is every photo from that session. The book itself is 24 inches by 36 inches. So it's this huge, like, I think it was like a thousand dollars. I bought it when I worked when I worked for Spin Magazine right out of college, and thought that you know you didn't have to save money for rent or anything. Yeah, sure. Um, Why? But yeah, like seeing Philip in that room, and we'll I guess we'll post this photo when you talk about this. But seeing Philip in a room with a guitar on a white wall, there's no way that I'm not going to try to make it look like Born to Run. No, and I think I think what's important to mention, not not to make this a a a, a Phil podcast, but (laughs) but is that. That record, I'd never been, I, I always appreciated the, the man's work and what he did. And he's like the sweetest guy. I mean, you become very close with him. Mm-hmm. Is that, that's a good record. Like he made. That's a great record. He made, I, I, you know, he made a really good fucking record. And it, it's, it's you know, it's a shame it didn't get more of a light shown on it. But, um, but yeah, I, I always think about that entire campaign really fondly. Not the business aspect of it, but just the creative and just all the times that we kind of spent with our, you know, with our friends and, 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 and building mm-hmm. friends. And I think I've never seen a team of people as happy with the work that was being done at that point anymore. Anyway, than I did on that campaign, and I think all of that is because of your, your honestly, your influence from Bruce. Yeah, I, I, well, I appreciate hearing that because to me, the most definitive thing I could ever do in my career is 
photograph an album cover that inspired someone to get into either that record, into writing music, working music, into photography, into design, any sorts of those things. Like my childhood bedroom to this day still has Bruce Springsteen album covers <laughs> hung up on the wall. Like I woke up every day and looked at the cover of Darkness, the cover of Born to Run, the cover of Nebraska, like my mom's copies of these records. That's and then the amazing. other wall was all Beatles album covers, Eric Clapton, uh, and like the first record I ever had a photo in, which is a band called The Loved Ones, a record called Keep Your Heart. It was on Fat Wreck in 2016. Like mm. those are still 2006. Sorry. Um, that'd be funny if the yeah, first I was, I, 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 I was, I, was four years ago. Yeah, I was like, wait a minute, that doesn't add up. I'm, I'm bad at math, but that seems really fucked up. <laughs> so if I could ever do a piece of work that inspired someone to get into music, like that's the goal and it's got to be the album cover the album cover is still the most definitive statement to me and you shot billy's album the 1975 cover too correct yes okay yes billy is wearing my clothes in that (laughs) (laughs) what is with that guy he was wearing my shoes we we were at a we were at a photo shoot once and i think it was right after i had back surgery so like i you know i obviously need the shoes that i'm wearing was this before or after i drove you into the ditch Oh, this was after the, wait, oh, I don't know now. You did drive me into a, di- but to, to be to be fair, to set the picture, we were out in Slab City and we thought we were going to get skinned alive, basically. And <laughs> I didn't see the ditch. You, we did not see the ditch. All I know is that I drove home in the middle of the night fueled by uh, truck stop, Mount, uh, Diet Mountain Dew, and whatever beef jerky I could find and Sour Patch Kid. I drove home from Calipatria, from the Salton Sea, and I remember I had the best text of my life from you the next morning where, where it was like, I think I saw I no no it was I've seen four species of bugs in this ho- in this motel room that I don't <laughs> I, that I didn't think previously existed and definitely saw a dead bed bug and I'm like all right I, I haven't slept but I'm at least home <laughs> so rock and roll is glamorous stay in school kids so glamorous as I drove back in my well, <laughs> in my Honda Fit from the desert so um it was funny that he steals our clothes because we we got to <laughs> we got to a video a video shoot and he's like. I like your Chucks better than mine. Let's switch. And he's got classic 75s, like the white ones. And I've got yeah, like... Yeah, was that the Frank Ockenfels photo shoot? It was the Frank Ockenfels yeah, photo shoot. Yeah, I have Frank's book. I have Frank's book on my t- coffee table right now in front of me. Oh, amazing. He was he was incredible, like a legend, you know? But like, I'm like... No, absolutely. I I'm love like, his work. Yeah, but I'm like... He called dude, me once. Yeah. I got a phone call from a random number once and I answered and he said, hey, it's Frank Ockenfels and I think I'm still blacked out. I mean, the guy shot, like, he did those iconic, like, like, oh, so the, the photo that's, that's the cover for, it's one of the most iconic later era Nirvana photos. It's the, uh, it's the cover for, with the lights out, the box set. Mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. That, my that, favorites and his Henry Rollins photos are my favorite Henry oh, Rollins photos of all time. He also did some incredible photos of Tupac, but I mean, mm-hmm. the, the guy. And Bowie. There's yeah, so and, Bo- and Bowie. All right, so I don't even care the wear off course. This is that. This is important stuff. Look, we like music. We like photography. We like Bruce Springsteen. Ask away. We do. <laughs> we do. All right. So I mean, I've run through my questions. The only one that mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm actually th- th- there's two. There's one that I think I know the answer to, but um, obviously Bruce's fan base. It's it's such a live thing. Like I, I, I get like, like like I said before, being a fan of Pearl Jam, it's like that's my church. You get that religious experience from mm-hmm. from that mm-hmm. show. So would you consider yourself a live fan or a studio fan? Because there's some Pearl Jam fans that don't even fuck with the studio records. And I'm sure that exists in the Bruce fandom as well. Yeah, like I would say I would say 
I predominantly listen to live renditions of the songs. I mm-hmm. love like turning on E Street Radio on Sirius XM and you know, and uh what is it, noon and eight o'clock Eastern, I think it is. They play full concerts every day. I've listened to hundreds of those in my life, especially in college, mm-hmm. driving back and forth between Baltimore and New Jersey all the time. Like mm-hmm. I would time my drive, which was about three hours, for one of those times so I could listen to the whole concert on the way. That's amazing. Um basically I have favorite Bruce Springsteen songs and favorite renditions of every Bruce Springsteen song. Oh, I do too. I, 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 that's, that's interesting. That's really interesting. So, so like I'm kind of that miserable crank to be around, like where, when my girlfriend puts on a certain Bruce Springsteen song, I'm like, Oh babe, thanks for putting that on. Now, can you go get the one off the chimes of freedom EP? Cause I like that version better. (laughs) Right. Well, cause also if, if all you do is spend your time listening to the live recordings and then you go back to like that studio recording and say it's 20 years old, it sounds Mm -hmm slower different it doesn't sound the same the song has morphed over the years you Mm -hmm. know it just and and even like for example one of my favorite springsteen songs of all time it's either one or two based on how what day you know how i'm feeling that day when you ask me Mm. song called land of hope and dreams bruce wrote it in 2001 when they did the east street or 2000 when they Mm. did the east street band reunion tour and it's a song based on the concept of you know like many songs before a concept of this train like getting on this train like there's a train to come in any of those sorts of things and it's a parallel for the e street band and bruce springsteen and his fandom and the collective and that like greater sense of self you get when you're at his shows like this train carries saints and sinners winner losers and winners yada 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 the ending coda all of those lyrics are about that that was one of my favorite bruce springsteen songs of all time he didn't record it for 14 years jesus so it's like, I love that studio version that came out on Wrecking Ball, or actually uh, came out maybe on High Hopes, I think, in 2014, somewhere mm-hmm. around there. Okay. But I loved that song for 15 years of my life before then. So how does the studio version hold up to the live version that you already held so dear? Well, the reason it holds up is because at the time, Clarence Clemens had already passed away. Uh-huh. But what they were able to do is take one of Clarence's live saxophone solos from that song and transpose it into the key of the song and play it that's and put it in and bruce says the producer did that entirely on his own didn't tell bruce and bruce like started weeping in the in the studio when he heard that and got to hear that clarence would actually be able to be a part of the song dude that's amazing yeah Wow. Well, that definitely is not a great segue for my next question. But what's the next question? Does he have a sexy song? Because they, like it, it's it, yeah, he's got a sexy song. <laughs> Does every artist have a sexy song? Is this like a thing you're trying to get to the bottom of? Yeah, I think I'm just trying to make the ultimate like strip club playlist, but not to not be at a strip club because like even a band like Soundgarden has a song called. Oh, like, I know what the like, secret is. I got you. Okay. Your song the garden thing, and I'll tell you what yeah, you yeah. need to know. No, they have this song "Mailman" that's off of Super Unknown, which is a perfect record, and it's the sexiest, slinkiest song. And it's not—it—it's almost like cloaked in euphemism, but it's not mm-hmm. about what you think it's about. But if it was played at a strip club, you'd be like, "This song's about Tim doing this stuff," and it's like it's not at all. But that's—but with the way it's written and the groove, it's like this is sexy as hell. All right, I've got you the secret for this. The secret is if the songwriter loved Elvis, they have a sexy song. Oh, I bo- okay, so, okay. So Bruce Springsteen has a song called Fire that he wrote to try to get to Elvis Presley 
like to have Elvis cut it. Elvis either passed on it or never made it to him or Elvis passed away uh, around then. But Bruce does it. It's a sexy song. Now you go back to like your uh, your first, second episode with Danzig. Yeah. Danzig. Dude loves Elvis. Oh, I mean, the dude has been, I mean, obviously there's some mistakes in his catalog, but on those first four records, he's Yeah, like, mostly the way he behaves. Well, there's all, that, see, we, <laughs> the reason I don't think Mark and I got into that is because this is a very small circle, and Mark works in that world, so I yeah. all, all due respect, uh, you know, I mean, I, and Mark could kick the shit out of Glenn Danzig, but that, you mm-hmm. know, I don't, I don't really want him to. <laughs> Look, if Glenn wanted to work with me and Glenn was nice to me, I would love it, but. I don't think that phone call is coming, so I'm not afraid to say I've heard something. Me either. He lives in Koreatown, too, so we're right down the street from each other. I, It just, it, yeah. I mean, I know I'm in better shape than Mr. Zig, so I think we'll be, I think we'll, we'll whatever. But <laughs> the man's written some sexy songs, I'm sure. Dude, he has. If you're in the Elvis covers record, right? Don't listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, this is funny. This has nothing to do with Bruce Springsteen, but it'll tie into your second episode. Yes. So... <laughs> when I first got into the Misfits, mm. it was through Alkaline Trio singing about Walk Among Us. They have a lyric that says, put Walk Among Us on and turn it up. So, mm-hmm. you know, back then the internet wasn't as like, you know, you didn't already know everything. Yeah, you kind of had to look it up. I was like, what's Walk Among word. Us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I put in the, so I went and bought Walk Among Us. And I loved that record. And then I saw that it was like new Misfits CD. So I bought Project 1950 by Misfits. Oh, what a mistake. No, Rob, the mistake was that it took me like three years to realize those are all covers. Well, I want to say that it doesn't even matter. (laughs) That's that was the prime part. It's like, okay, we're going to talk about the Misfits, Sam Hain and Danzig. And then we're not going to talk about much after that. And and did uh, you get into Michael Graves? Dude, of course we talked about it. We didn't talk about his politics. We talked about those two records that are, I mean, in my opinion, and I'll get I'll get crushed for this. Those are the best Misfits records. They're not, but American Psycho <laughs> is a great song. Oh, American Psycho, that whole record. All right, well, yeah, we can definitely. I, I look, I love, I love all that shit, and I love Michael Graves' voice. But wow, there was, um, there were some misfires after that for sure. Yeah. So my, my, oh, what were we gonna say? I was gonna say I feel like I haven't done much service to Mr. Springsteen in this, but then again, it's so, talking about him is so second nature to me that maybe I've told you a few things you don't know already. No, you you crush me with a couple of things. Like the number one thing I had no idea about. Now I want to listen to Fire because you know it, I didn't know that a sexy Springsteen existed. So, <laughs> or, or I've, I've heard the song, but I don't. I think in the context of the record, I've never listened to it on its own. Thinking, yeah, okay, go this find, is, yeah. I think there's like a performance of it in like 78, I think from Tempe, Arizona, that's like shot in it's it's there's video from that concert of like him and Clarence really like kind of hamming it up during it. That's the one that you want to see. Okay, so that that leads me to because I my last question is usually like, okay, if you weren't going to talk, if this wasn't going to be a podcast about Bruce Springsteen, I assume we would talk about Alkaline Trio. (laughs) Yeah, most likely. So I don't have to ask that. So here is my question. And I mean this half sincerely. Why can't they afford a, a second microphone on stage? Oh, so for why does Stevie Van Zandt come to his? It's like, I just imagine that like they all had a big Italian meal and they're all sharing the same mic with like the garlic breath. <laughs> the, like, I, it's just so, I, it's like almost like a, like a trade. It's a trademark in a way, like them leaning on each other. Then his wife comes in or, but, but like, it just always struck me as super funny. I'm like, you know, I, 
The guy could afford a few other mics, I'm pretty sure. Okay, so I've got three things to say in, in response to that question. Do you want the one that answers the question or the two questions it poses to me? Uh, I want all three in that order. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm literally writing them down to remember because I'm cracking myself up here. So I, I don't know where Bruce gets that from. I don't know if it's a callback to like a bygone era where maybe, you know, maybe it was a doo-wop group or something that would come to one microphone and do it. I don't know if it's like something like that. I love it. No. I think it's great. Totally. Everyone I know from New Jersey, we do that. Like Young Rising Suns, the first band I ever worked with like full-time as a full-time photographer, no other job, no anything. The band that introduced me to Interscope, mm-hmm. the band that I was able to move to Los Angeles because of like, they would do that every night because we are they, we're five men from New Jersey <laughs> and that's just what we do. Well, I, I have seen them do it live in, in New York. So, you know, a world's away from New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, but... It, now, you, if Bruce Springsteen can afford two microphones, why can't Jacob Dylan afford two headlights is my question. Oh, my God. Uh, no comment. I, I Look, I, I don't want to get into Jacob Dylan. You got to tell me that man could afford a second headlight. It's probably like $62. I mean, I, I oh, God, I had a meeting with him in an undisclosed location, an undisclosed time for an undisclosed job that I may or may not have currently. And I had to teach him with a coworker of mine what Instagram was. And no, this was not in 2012. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that brings up my favorite tweet of all time, which author i don't know the author of this someone can google it and give that man or woman all the credit for it but it is i understand i understand robert johnson's deal with the devil but i will never understand bruce springsteen's deal with takamini i don't get that bruce plays takamini acoustic guitars on stage Wait, so is this, all right, so explain that, so, okay, so I don't, I'm a drummer and a a bad singer, and I dabble in guitar, is this like, Mm -hmm. is is it a shitty brand? Well, it's just like, it's just like seeing Robert Smith from The Cure play an ovation, Mm, it's like, they're just the one guy that plays that brand. That I get, okay, got it, got it. Like, while everyone else is playing Taylors and Martins and Gibsons, these guys are playing Takamini and Ovation, so I'll never understand that. But that tweet made me chuckle. I mean, is it? Is it is Actually, it a... it's my second favorite tweet of all time. I remembered my first. What's the first? <laughs> it was Martin Johnson from Boys Like Girls tweeting, Just saw Zach De La Rocha getting into a Volkswagen Golf, raging against a much smaller machine than expected. Oh, man, that is... That works for me. <laughs> <laughs> Jesse, we have to do this again sometime. I think what we'll do is get your boy from the Somerset on here. We'll mm-hmm. we'll, we'll go in deeper. At that point, I, I'll have had I've had done more homework, get more uh, engrossed. That was a, not meant to be a pun, but it was already wow. kind of I, I had to do it. Um, mm-hmm. But this is awesome. I'm I, I, this was exactly why I wanted to do this specific podcast with you because I learned a bunch of shit. It's an artist you're super passionate about, and um, man, thank you so much. Um, um, if you want to follow Jesse on Instagram, it's, it's at Jesse DeFlorio. I believe your website's jessedeflorio.com. I sure hope it is because I pay for that. Well, then it better be jessedeflorio.com. <laughs> and please hire him, but not so much that I can't still hire him. Thank you so much again, and we will see you soon on the Grossed Out Podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you, Rob. Sure. Bye. <laughs>